1 Peter chapter 5, and if you're looking in one of the church Bibles, it's going to be on page 590. And um, we're going to start in um, verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 5. This is what Peter writes. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Um, So we've been talking about the church for several weeks, and we've we've approached it from many different angles. It's kind of a church 101 kind of series that we're in, and we'll be in through at least through January. And the idea is, um, as we've told you many times, that we are are pursuing the, the, the ability or the opportunity to define and to clarify what it means to be a member of Northridge Life Church. Is a member someone just, that just shows up? Is a member someone that just gives occasionally? Is a, is a member someone that just says, hey, I put my name on a piece of paper? And so what we're trying to do is clarify that and define it. And, and the, the reason we're doing this series on the church is because we believe that if you want to be a part of a church, that you should go in with your eyes wide open. Amen? And know exactly what it means to be a church. A church is, is different than anything else that is a, considered to be like a, a social organization or a some kind of charitable, nonprofit, anything or any club or lodge or anything like that. A church is completely different. The church, as defined by Scripture, is the living, breathing body of Christ. It is not an, organi- an organization as much as it is an organism. And so we need to understand what it is that makes a healthy church function. Amen? So today we're going to talk about that. Now last week we saw that Jesus Christ was the head of his body, the church. We talked about that and and we, we discovered together that there's no one who is so inherently qualified or so inherently called that they can replace Jesus or speak in his stead and say, hey, I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. No one can do that as though they had his authority. Jesus Christ, and if you weren't here this last week, I want you to know this. Jesus Christ rules his church in reality. He does not rule it by pretend. He is here. He is present. He is the head of his church. That's absolutely um, the message of Scripture. Now, when I say that, though, and if you came around, if you were here last week, you might have left with some questions. That does not mean, and it's not to indicate, that there are no human beings who can represent Christ in order to help us as the body understand God's will or bring order to the church. It's just that they do so, the people who are doing that, are doing so um, under the authority of someone else. Anybody want to guess who that is? 
They do it under the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the only sovereign king. One more time, if I haven't been completely clear, what I'm saying is that kingdom leadership does not originate with any human being. It doesn't start there. Every bit of authority that anyone exercises in the church has been granted. It has been not earned. It has not been deserved. It is a task that is assigned by the master of the church. That's who leads. Now, therefore, what that means for us is that we said this last week. I just want to uh, recap that no man is authorized to be a dictator in the kingdom of God. Whether benevolent or otherwise, no one gets that right. Now, there are people that have tried it, people that have done it, but it never is pleasing to God, and it always ends in disaster. Human leaders in the church are ambassadorial representatives of their king. Think about what an ambassador is. An ambassador goes from this country, let's say from America, and they go to another country, and they represent the interests of the leaders of that country, the country that sent them. So our ambassador in, in China or, you know, wherever is not there to, to set policy and, and tell what American policy is going to be. No, they are, they are enforcing and communicating what American policy is on behalf of the person who's in charge or the people who are in charge. Everyone understand the correlation here? The people who lead the church do not get to say, well, welcome to my church. I'm going to tell you how it's going to go. No, we are pastors, elders. We're ambassadorial representatives that say, this is what the leader of the kingdom says. And that's it. That's it. There's nothing more glorious than that. Um, it, it, it's not more grandiose. It's not, it, it, there's no extra baggage attached to it. We are just communicating what the master says. He rules and his leaders follow and obey the orders if they're going to be pleasing to him. This is right out of the book of Psalms. Psalm 75, 6 says this. It says, exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert. For God is the judge. Watch this. He brings down one and he exalts another. God chooses who is going to do uh, the, the representation of his government. Furthermore, no one, we talked about this last week as well, no one is authorized to lead in an unaccountable manner. No one is authorized to do that. Leadership in the church is always done within community. Always. It's always done within community. Think about, think about the Bible. Think about the New Testament. At the very onset of the church in the book of Acts, after Jesus ascended, he's the head of the church. After he ascended, the, he left 12 apostles to kind of give guidance and direction to the church. And those apostles said elders everywhere. But think about this. Even among those 12 apostles in Galatians chapter 2, they, we see that Paul had to hold Peter, both of them apostles, but Paul had to hold Peter accountable because he was taking a position that was driven drifting from the core of the gospel. What was the benefit of that? The leadership of the church was in community so they could say, hey, 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 I mean, I'm counting on Daryl and Dave and Don to help me if I start drifting from the root of the gospel to grab my collar and say, uh-uh, come on back this way, buddy. I want them to do that. I'm relying on them to do that. I'm counting on them to do that. Today, what we're going to do then, with all of that kind of recap and setup, we're going to focus our, our attention on one group of human agents 
that Jesus has given to the church, and the Bible says that they've been given as a gift, that he's given to the church in order to lead and provide care, and that would be the elders. Now, what you need to know is eldership is not a new concept. Eldership is actually one of the oldest governing, kingdom-governing institutions in the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, uh, the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, every single one of them had elders, and those elders were responsible for the faithful care of that tribe and even the clans within the tribe. When the church became the new spiritual Israel, as God's chosen people on earth, eldership was adopted by the church and was vital to its proper functioning. In other words, eldership was to make sure that that what the master wanted, the ambassadorial representation was happening, and so the master's will was carried out. The book of Titus tells us a whole lot about biblical eldership. Now, Titus, we won't talk a lot about him today, but he was an often mentioned uh, ministry partner, church planning partner of Paul's. And this is what Paul writes in Titus chapter 1 when he's explaining uh, what his intention was in assigning Titus the particular duty he had given him. And he says this, he says, This is why I left you in Crete. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul's direction to Titus was to install elders in the towns and the villages of the island of Crete. And it tells us a lot about their importance, uh, of the importance of elders within the church. First, we see that the proper functioning of the church required that elders be in place to provide care. What did Paul say? He said, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order. They were not a luxury, these, these elders. They, they were rather a critical necessity to the health of the church. And there would not be order if there were not elders. There would be no order whatsoever. Now, more than that, we see that the elders were to be installed everywhere, Paul said, in every town. This was so that there would be local shepherds. I cannot tell you how important this is, that there would be local shepherds to care for every member of God's global flock. Global church, local shepherds, local flocks within God's global global church. They wouldn't have to travel in the new church. They wouldn't have to travel to some central location like Jerusalem or Rome, um, but they, they just to get you know instruction and correction, they could do that right within their local bodies because of this idea of eldership. Now, let me explain what this means. It's it's very true. It's it's an absolute truth that there is one church. How many churches are there? There's one church. Now, you might see a church building, a church congregation on every corner of our town, but but of the true confessing believers in Jesus Christ, there is one church, one church. So it's true that the church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, is just as important and valuable to the body of Christ as Northridge Life Church is. Amen? We all agree with that. And and that we are, uh, one church, we're united to them in a very real way through Christ and by the Spirit of God. But the elders in this church, this hypothetical church in Tuscaloosa, will not give account to God for the members of Northridge Life Church. They won't. And guess what? Good news, guys. Our elders will not give account for their church. God has given every church local oversight and accountability. Local. So who am I responsible for? I'm responsible for you. Who are you responsible for? You're responsible for me. 
And, and that's a good thing to remember because sometimes we get really wound up about what's happening in other churches and ministries, right? Anybody ever know anybody like that? And so it's really helpful if we can say, hey, let's, uh, let's sweep all the dirt out from under our own rug before we start white glove in everybody else's house, right? You know, not a bad idea. So we have this idea, local leadership, and next in verses 6 through 9, Paul lists the qualifications for a biblical elder, and there are qualifications, and he tells Titus that they must be above reproach, they must be the husband of one wife, they must be able to manage their households well, and that means not having out-of-control children. Everybody has out-of-control children every once in a while, so don't worry about that. I'm talking about as a lifestyle. They must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. They mustn't be drunkards or violent or greedy. They must be hospitable, lovers of good, uh, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. They must not only believe the Bible and cling to it, that's absolutely essential, but they must also be able to confidently teach it and be willing to rebuke anyone who dares contradict it. In a similar list found in 1 Timothy, Paul adds that that the elders must be sober-minded and respectable, that they mustn't be a recent convert, and they must be well thought of by those outside the church. Whenever we install a new elder, we just did this several months ago at Northridge Life Church, we ask you, the congregation, to help us determine the, uh, the presence of these qualities. This is another way that this congregation contributes together to the community leadership of the church. So we send out a letter and we say, hey, we're, we want Don Litton to uh, be an elder. We think he'd be a great guy. And everybody says, yeah, we love Don. And one of you sends me a letter and says, well, he was dealing crack to my kids in the parking lot. Then that's a little bit of a problem. And he hasn't done that for months. So don't worry about it. I'm telling you. But, uh, but uh, you're, you're almost over that, aren't you, Don? So, but... But, it, you know, so, so we, we want people to contribute to helping us know who has that authorization. So in his letter to Titus, let's just recap one more time. In the letter to Titus and in 1 Timothy, Paul teaches that, number one, elders facilitate the biblical ordering of the church. Number two, that there should be local as opposed to centralized governance of local churches. And number three, the prospective elder, can, elder candidates, should, uh, their lives should be marked by great integrity and high moral character. Everybody say amen to that kind of guys you want. Um, we discover uh, more about the intention of God pertaining to elders by examining more closely the text we read in the beginning. It's one from First Peter chapter 5. Um, you can't fully understand, however, the text we read without knowing the context of 1 Peter. So Peter in 1 Peter is writing to Christians who were suffering increased persecution, real violence in the provinces of the Roman Empire north of the Tarsus Mountains in modern-day Turkey. In chapter 1, these are the kinds of the counsel and encouragement that, that Peter is giving. In chapter 1, he tells the church that they're to rejoice, though now for a little while they've been grieved by various trials. He's refocusing their attention on what's important. In chapter 2, he reminds them that this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. In chapter 3, he encourages them, telling them, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Chapter 4, he tells them to rejoice insofar as they share in Christ's sufferings, that they may also rejoice and be glad 
when his glory is revealed. So, so you see throughout all four chapters, first four chapters, he's talking about suffering and putting it in context. So this brings us to where we began our text today. Pay close attention to the context again in the light of Peter's encouragements on their suffering. Having addressed the church, he now turns his attention to the elders, to the leadership in the congregation he's addressing. And so he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And this word so, placed right there at the beginning of the sentence, you know what it means. It means thus or therefore. In other words, in the light of everything I said before in chapters 1 through 4, I now say this. I'm talking to you elders in light of all of that stuff in chapters 1 through 4. His encouragement to the church is to endure suffering. As he tells them to endure suffering, that encouragement is incomplete until he addresses their leaders. It's the elders who are tasked with helping people navigate the suffering that they're experiencing, showing them how to faithfully endure. Why do we invite you up to be prayed for by Don and Kim and Daryl and, and Judy and sometimes David and Katie and, or me and Ginger? Why do we do that? Because we have special pray magic powers? Of course not. That's silly. The reason we do that is because one of the duties that we have been tasked with is to show you how to endure suffering and to comfort you when you are enduring suffering. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a representative ambassadorial function to, to help you do that. Does that mean that other people can't pray with anybody? Of course not. I encourage you to pray for 10 people before you leave church today. That's not the point. The point is that we're, we're trying to, to show you how to faithfully endure by praying for you. There are to be, the, the, the elders are to be right smack dab in the middle of the congregation's suffering. That's a really important thing. It's a really important distinction. If you have a church, and again, I'm not, I am making distinctions over the last few weeks, but I want you to know I'm not picking on any other churches. I love everyone in the body of Christ. I'm just saying, if you wander into a church and the, uh, the elders, the leadership are untouchable celebrities, you are in the wrong church. You're in the wrong place. The elders are called to be smack dab in the middle of what you're suffering. Because we'd really love it if you're right in the smack dab in the middle of ours when we're suffering. Amen, elders? Sometimes people want their elders to be gurus on mountaintops, belging out sage philosophies. But though they're leaders, they're, they, they must be fellow sufferers in order to be credible. On what basis does Peter address these men, these other elders. He does it on the basis of three things in that first verse. He says, I, I, I'm exhorting you as a fellow elder. So what Peter's saying is that he's not a foreigner to the task of pastoring people. Christ had once said to him several years previous, about 30 years previous, on, on a beach in John chapter 1, we talked about this, how he'd said, feed my sheep. And, and he'd been doing this for almost 30 years at the time he wrote this letter to the churches, he was saying, hey, listen, I'm asking you to feed sheep. I fed sheep. I, we are fellow laborers together. Second, he appeals to them as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, Peter is not saying here that he once observed the historical event of the crucifixion. Yes, that's part of it. But, but he's saying that he has dedicated his life to being a witness of the glorious victory of Christ over suffering. 
as well as the victory that he purchased for the entirety of believing humanity. In other words, he has seen through, the, through his preaching and his ministry, he has seen people who were absolutely freed from the, from the pain and the burden of suffering because of the victory of Jesus Christ, and he's a witness to it. Thirdly, he's saying that he is a, uh, appealing to them as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. This is always a message of the elders. He's, he's saying that he's heard with his own ears. He sat with Jesus for three years and he heard with his own ears promises from the Son of God concerning the vindication that awaits saints who patiently endure suffering. And, and what he's doing right now is he's equipping the elders He's equipping these elders that he's talking to with spiritual food that they can give to the hungry souls in their own churches. And he's telling them that when it's all said, by saying that he's a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, he's looking to the future, and he's telling them, and listen to this church, this is so important, such an important message, and it's a function of elders to keep this message in front of you. That no matter what you're going through right now, when it's all said and done, if you maintain your trust in Jesus, it will have been worth it. That's what Peter's saying. I'm a partaker in not just the the sufferings of Christ, but the glory that he has purchased for us that's coming at a later date. And he says, just hold on. If you'll endure suffering patiently, it will be worth it. So what is he telling the elders to do faithfully? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He's telling them to join with him, their fellow elder, in the task of feeding the flock of Jesus Christ. The the task that Jesus had given him so many years ago, he said, hey, I want you to be a part of this. Join me. Help me as I shepherd the flock of God. We pointed this out last week from John 21, but I want you to see it now in context. See this here again. The flock that these elders, as Peter, are to shepherd are not their flock. They're the flock of God. I'm making a huge point of this. Because even when pastors around town talk to me and, and, and other pastors, and, and they don't mean anything by it. I'm not judging anybody. But they say, they say hey, uh, where's your church? How's your church? How big is your church? How's your church doing? And I always want to scream, this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And for some reason that I'll never figure out, he asked me to be an elder in his church. I'll never figure that one out. But I said yes, and here I am. And, 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 and so we, this point is so much worth making again and again. This is not shepherd the flock of Mark. This is shepherd the flock of God. Feed my sheep. He's not talking to them about their flock, but about the one that belongs to God. Again, it is a stewardship issue, not an ownership issue. How are they to shepherd God's flock? They do it, Peter says, by exercising oversight. What does that mean? That means watching over. It means that they, the elders, are the ones who are to provide care, to provide comfort, to provide compassion, to provide correction, to provide spiritual food, to provide instruction, to provide encouragement, to provide prayer and assistance of various kinds. That is the job of an elder, to exercise oversight, to look over, to watch over. And this means also that they're not to be intimidated to walk in the authority that God has entrusted to them, but they are to do it with humility. Peter, 2 Timothy rather, 4.2, Paul says this to his young protege, Timothy. He says, Timothy, preach the word. 
Be ready in season and out of season. Listen, some of these words are kind of hard, but he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but with complete patience and teaching. He says, hey, if there's something you got to set in order, set it in order. But don't you dare forget that you too are a struggling sinner and you need to be patient and humble in this. Peter gives us three principles for the exercise of our oversight and authority. He says, first, not under compulsion. Don't exercise your authority under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Listen to me. No one should ever be pushed into church leadership, no matter how seemingly qualified they may be. I've seen it. In fact, 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 says, if anyone aspires, the King James word is desire. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The first qualification for eldership is personal desire. Listen to me carefully. Eldership is not a got to proposition. It's a get to proposition. It's a great thing. And here's what I want to tell you. Those of you, and there's, a, there's a, the vast majority who are not elders, if, you, if there's something in your heart that you dis, uh, aspire to, to give leadership to the church, bravo. We welcome it. We want you. We're encouraging you. Let us know about that because we want to get you ready. We want to develop it. If there's things that God wants to address in your life to help you prepare, then we want to help you see those and perceive those things. The Bible says it's a good thing to want to lead. One thing I love about Paul Brooks is he told me two years ago, I want to lead in the church. He said, I think we can work with that. And look what he's doing now. And so if that's you, don't, be, don't have this sense of false humility. We're like, golly gee whiz, I can't tell anybody that, aw shucks. Don't do that. Tell us. We want to help you become what God's called you to become. I've known a lot of people on this idea of being you know, compelled into ministry. I've known a lot of people who have pursued ministry and leadership because, simply because their mama or their daddy thought it was a good idea. Daddy, granddaddy were a preacher, so you better be too. And that person themselves had no calling, no interest in it. And sometimes the church has pressured people to take leadership because they had a particular skill set. And that was it. And that guy's got a real dynamic personality. He needs to be out front. But the person themselves had no desire to lead whatsoever. Let me make this very clear to you. That always ends in disaster. Always. The first thing that has to be there is personal desire. That doesn't mean you're ready. It just means that that you've got the first ingredient to work with. Next, Peter says that people who lead should lead not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So if you hope to be a leader in the church so that you can gain money, I mean, because we're all rolling in it. um, If you hope to to gain money or influence, I'm more scared that it took a few of you a second to figure out that was a joke. So anyway... If you hope to gain money, influence, power by church leadership, listen, there are circumstances and situations where you might get exactly that. You might get money. You might get power. You might get influence. But you will never in ministry with those motivations amount to anything of any eternal consequence at all, if that's your motivation. You might get it, but you won't amount to anything. And I guarantee you that the day will come when you will most assuredly fall if you do not repent into the hands of a vengeance-taking God, if that's your motivation. God takes his sheep very seriously. He doesn't, he doesn't put under-shepherds in to fleece his sheep. 
We must not have a what's in it for me attitude towards ministry. We must willingly and eagerly serve, confidently trusting that God, not the church, but God is the provider of all of our needs. Thirdly, Peter says that we lead not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Some people not only forget that the people in the church are God's sheep, but they begin to think that the people in the church are their own personal cattle. You know what the difference between um, sheep and cattle are? Do you understand the, the fundamental difference? You see, sheep follow as they're led. You walk, the sheep can walk right after you. But cattle have to be driven with whips and prods and shouts. Peter instructs leaders to lead by example, not by force or dominance. That's how leaders lead in the church. They don't bully or beat people over the head with a law that they themselves are unable to keep. Jesus told the Pharisees, or spoke about the Pharisees, and he said, They preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Peter says that for those who lead and serve faithfully, there is a great promise of reward to come. He says, When the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, of course, there are rewards promised in the Bible to non-elders as well. God doesn't have this hierarchy where he has his favorites. But, but what, what this is saying, what the scripture points out is that God is pleased when his people help others enter into and thrive in the kingdom. That's a pleasing thing to God when leaders do that. And he promises, I'm not going to forget you. I'm not going to forget you. But notice one more time, I've got to say it again. Notice one more time with me, who's in charge? Jesus, Peter calls him, is the chief shepherd. So that means that everyone else serving him in church leadership is at best an under-shepherd. Peter ends our text today with a few encouragements for those in the church who are not elders. First he says, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, I want to explain something. Matthew, uh, Bible commentators, a couple of my Bible commentators, a couple of my favorites, Matthew Poole and Charles Ellicott say that this probably isn't talking about chronological age when it says you who are younger. Because the fact of the matter is, I, there's a lot of you who I have the privilege of being the pastor that to you I am a young whippersnapper. So that, that's clearly not what he's talking about. He's talking about all the people being in deference to the leadership of the church that God's established. This is confirmed in Hebrews 13:17, where the writer of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them for, not because they're, they're the biggest, baddest guys in the church. This is why it says, it says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I've said this before. In fact, I think I said it recently, but, but did you know that a day is coming? And I, I take this very, very seriously when I will stand before God and not only give an account for my life and, and my, the, the way that I lived in holiness or rejected holiness, but the Bible is clear that I will give an account for every single one of you, everyone. Were you faithful? Did you preach only the gospel? Did you show up to comfort, encourage, care? Were you praying for them? All of those things are going to be peppered on me. I am going to give an account for every single one of you, along with Don, along with Daryl, along with Dave, every single one of us. And to be honest with you, I can't speak for these three guys. I'm not exaggerating either. There are times that keeps me awake at night. 
if I feel like I'm just not getting across. That's a, that's a terrifying thought to me. And so the writer of Hebrews does us all a solid when he says this, let them do this, let them keep watch over your souls with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I have known pastors, in fact, I was talking to Daniel about one uh, the, uh, last night, I know pastors that just have, have just served and served and served their congregation, and they have just been resisted and resisted and I guarantee everyone in this room has seen this happen and fought until the pastor is miserable, broken, and just cuts his losses and, and heads out. I am so grateful for you and the encouragement and the love and the, and the, the, the really the latitude that you guys give me. It's so great because I do consider this a joy. And I'm not saying that because I'm up here on the platform right now. I do. I, I tell people in private that all the time. I consider this a joy. And I want to thank you for that. Please keep it up. Please keep it up. Because we want this to be a joy. We want this to be something. And, and, and if, 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 <laughs> if the church is making the leadership miserable, no one wins. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He said, it would be no advantage to you, not to him, to you. As the leaders are, are to resist dominance and to be examples, the people of the church are told to submit to the leadership that God has established. And keep that phrase in, in mind, that God has established. This isn't to be regarded as primarily a submission to my leadership or these other guys' leadership, but rather to God's sovereignty. It is he, the Bible says, who says, I will build my church, and he sets up and brings down leaders as he desires. Peter's next command He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice that this command is directed not at elders, not at congregations, but to everyone. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you. That means that the church can only function properly if we commit to live in humility towards each other with tremendous patience with tenderheartedness, with forgiveness. This means that elders give these things or should give these things in abundance to the flock and that the flock in return lavishes humility and patience and mercy. Oh God, please mercy on the elders. As I've said before, who wouldn't want to go to a church like that where waves of mercy and forgiveness and tenderness and compassion and patience were just swirling around here like a, like a, a, a tornado all the time. Wouldn't that be great? That's the kind of church people want to go to. And don't ignore that this, this commandment has a promise attached to it. It has a negative promise and a positive promise. First, the negative. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. Now, I hope this sobers you up when you hear this. Can you imagine what it must feel like to be opposed by God? God has a perfect rating on his defensive line. God cannot be thwarted at all. You are not getting through that line. If God is opposing you, you ain't going nowhere. God opposes the proud. And I hate this. This is one of the worst parts of my job. But I've got to look at you and tell you quite honestly that I know that there are people in this room right now who are being opposed by God because of your pride. I'm not pointing it out, of course, but you know who you are. 
Things are just, you know, obviously, and you're getting frustrated, maybe even angry with God because you're opposed. And you think, man, I am having a run of bad luck. Forgive me, but you're a fool. You're a fool. This pride that you're ignoring has prompted God to literally stand against you. Literally. I'm not telling you anything that's not in the Scripture. God opposes the proud. Can you admit for the health of your own soul that you're stiff-necked, that you're stubborn, that you're proud, that you're not living in service and sacrifice for anyone, especially not God? Come on, sinner, humble yourself. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop building a sandcastle on your own righteousness. Stop insisting that no one can tell you what to do. Do you want God to oppose you all the way to the grave? Do you want God to oppose you all the way to the grave? He will not relent. You cannot win that fight. What a... What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful promise is associated on the other side of that coin. But God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. See, what you need, I don't care where you are, what you've done, where you, you know, what, you're, what kind of things are stacked up, what kind of baggage. What you need and what we all need is grace. See, the Bible says that Jesus is full of grace. It says that we are justified by grace, that all of God's promises rest on grace, that we stand in grace, that grace frees us from the law, that grace builds, that grace gives, that grace abounds, that grace is sufficient, that grace calls, that grace saves, that grace communicates, that grace gives us eternal comfort and good hope that grace overflows, that grace strengthens, and that grace trains us to renounce unrighteousness. Who could use a little grace this morning? Who could use a little? What more could you possibly need? What have you put on your list for Santa that wouldn't be less than grace? I need grace. How do I get it? The way we acquire grace is through humility what the Bible says, gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? It's, it's humility that admits that we're powerless before a God who is all-powerful. It's humility that confesses, all right, I get it. I could never be enough, but oh yeah, he's more than enough. It's, it's grace that, or it's humility that acknowledges that all I am is the sheep of his pastor, and pastor and that he is the only chief shepherd, and more than that, He's the good shepherd. Do you remember what you read in Scripture? Probably one of the first things you ever read, if you've ever read Scripture at all. It went like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of Of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely, 
Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's grace. That's the grace He gives to the humble. Today, He's prepared a table before us, and we shall not want. So let's come to the table of our good shepherd today. Let's let's let him make us lie down. Let's let him lead us to still water and restore our souls. Let's pray that he leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his great name. May he free us from the fear of evil and harm and comfort us. May he anoint us with the sweet Holy Spirit and may our cup overflow. We can rest assured that his goodness and his mercy will never depart from us all the days of our lives. And may the leadership, current, future, may the leadership of Northridge Life Church always shepherd the Lord's people in a close reflection of the way the Lord so wonderfully shepherds us. Can I have the elders come forward and help us serve at the table? Paul, in writing to the first Corinthians, says, For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today let us gather at the table and proclaim the Lord's death as one body until that glorious day. Man, aren't you looking forward to it? Till that glorious day when the chief shepherd appears. And as you come, listen carefully. As you come, ask God, have the courage to ask God to highlight areas of pride that might be in you. Things that might have God opposing you. I've said it over and over. I'll say it again. You cannot get God to say uncle. He's not giving up till he accomplishes in you what he would accomplish. And, and don't stop there. As you acknowledge and confess and repent of your pride, don't stop there, but thank him. Thank Jesus for the abundant grace that's freely available. It's represented by this bread and this cup, a broken body and spilled blood. It reminds us that it's available for everyone who asks. Everyone who asks gets grace. That's what it means to humble yourself. Some of you might want to really put your confidence, put your trust in Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. Stop running. Stop running. You're not gaining anything and you're losing a lot. Stop running. And you think, man, Mark, I don't even know what that means. Well, that's, that's okay. Don, Daryl, Dave, myself, we would love to talk to you. We're not going to do anything weird. We're not going to make you, you know, do something that you don't want to do. Just if you want to know, say, hey, I want to put my trust in Jesus Christ. Will you help me know what that means? Just ask us and we'll tell you. Also, if you're here and, and you're not a believer, don't don't come down here. This is this is this is for believers. Not only because it's not because we're not inviting you or withholding something from you. It's because this this means nothing to you. It's a sham. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, it's just a sham. These, this is for us to feast on Christ and remember what he's done for us. And then lastly, for all of us, let us by faith 
all of us humble ourselves before God in joyful repentance so that he can lavish the riches of his abundant grace on us in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you so much for the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. You have made all things new. You have made us whole through trusting in your great name. And Lord, I pray right now that you would just um, provide the, the impetus for us to confess our sin and repent of our pride, Lord God, and to, and to put our trust in you as you build your church and as you shepherd our souls, Lord. God, we, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray that as we come to your table now, that we would encounter you and that you would change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.